Welcome to the Mr. TV Podcast, a love letter to shows of the past. On today's episode we're speaking with Paul Zalum, who played Beekman on Beekman's World. Fact! Most people would have to eat 117 tomatoes to gain one pound, <coughs> but only one chocolate cake. No, oh, anyway you slice it, I'm Beekman, and you've just broken into Beekman's World! The original idea for Beekman's World came from writer Jock Church and his comic series You Can with Beekman and Jax. The comic answered science questions from kids and provided them with fun experiments they could do at home, which paved the way for the television show's format. In our chat, we talked to Paul about how he got the role, his international fame, Jock Church, and much more. Stay tuned. Paul Zaloom, welcome to the Mr. TV Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Uh, um, for our listeners you know, who may have missed out on Beekman's World, could you describe what was the show about? Uh, it was about a fictional scientist named Beekman, and kids would write in and ask questions about science, and Beekman and his assistant, female assistant and giant lab rat Lester <laughs> would uh, answer two of those questions in the course of the show. And then in a little middle section, there was a bunch of fast facts. Yeah. And how did you get involved in the show? Um, the show is based on a syndicated comic um, that ran in newspapers uh, all over the U S and Canada. Yep. And, uh, somebody got the idea, oh, it'd be great to turn this into a TV show, the syndicated column. It was called You Can with Beekman and Jax. And basically, mm-hmm. um, it, it was the same conceit. Kids would write in to uh, you know, an address, and then Beekman in the comic would answer the kids' questions about science. And it was the it was the first comic created entirely on a Mac, I believe. And a guy got the idea, hey, let's turn this into a TV show. Um, not because anybody cares about the education of kids, but because it solved <laughs> the requirements of the 1990 Children's Television Act passed by the Congress that that requires local television stations in order to get their licenses renewed. Mm-hmm. They have to provide a certain amount of information and or educational programming um, to the public. Uh, so that totally didn't answer your question. And uh, that's you okay. Get used to that because it's going to be happening a lot. <laughs> I guess one quick follow up to that is, you know, you are, you play the titular character Beekman in the show. And you just mentioned that sort of requirement for educational programming. Was that something that you were aware of going into the show and going into the role? I'm not sure when I became aware of it. I do <laughs> believe it or not. I did testify before a congressional committee about um, the act when um, is that on video? I don't think so. That's interesting. There must. I gotta find that then. Yeah, there must be testimony that's in the congressional record. (laughs) Oh man, (laughs) that could end up being like really embarrassing. Oh, we're gonna have a clip in there, hidden here somewhere about that. But what were you testifying about exactly? About the Children's Television Act of 1990. And Mm. I think they were just asking me questions about, you know, 
educational programming and its role and its purpose and why the act was a good thing. And the chairman was um, Markey. Uh, is it Ed Markey? Uh, the um, senator from Massachusetts who recently defeated a Kennedy in a very oh. ill-advised challenge. Hmm. Um, Ed, Ed Markey. And he's actually, he's, he's a pretty terrific senator. Um, and I got to sit in his chair and have my picture taken. <laughs> <laughs> I think holding the gavel or something. He was the chairman of the, I guess it was a communications committee or something like okay. that. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was an amusing, um, little tidbit that I, I'm, I'm assuming that you went as Paul Zaloom and you didn't go as the character Beekman with the wig and the green lab coat, I'm assuming. No, no, okay. I didn't. And you know what we used to call the wig? Or, or Jay Dubin, the director, used to call the yeah. wig the roadkill. And he'd say, <laughs> okay, put the roadkill on. Let's go. Because <laughs> he, he has a New York uh, Dems and Doors accent. Gotcha. So he talks like this. You know, he comes from the old neighborhood in Brooklyn. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's the way. Put the roadkill on. That you know, we're in. Let's go. Yeah. Well, actually, my next question was about Jay Dubin, uh, and he was involved in, uh, I believe, the show Dinosaurs at that sitcom. But I understand that he was the one who reached out to you about the role. Um, what was he looking for? Well, the problem was they were trying to cast the part in Hollywood. And what they told me was they kept coming up with like sitcom dads mm -hmm. and uh, they needed somebody more weird. <laughs> you know, they <laughs> wanted somebody who's just more eccentric and more not like, you know, a sitcom yeah. dad. And they had actually cast a guy who was a comedian. Um, this is actually I not very publicly known, but they had cast a guy, but there were two problems with the guy once they cast him and they were ready to sign papers and stuff. The first problem was he only had a fifth grade education. So it was very hard for him to sell this, the, the stuff the because he didn't okay. really, he didn't, I don't know. He just wasn't good at selling it. I, I, I mean, if you're an actor, I think you could go, you know, into the third grade and you could sell stuff, but right. Right. Uh, and the second thing was they found out that uh, the end of his act, his comedy act, was he would take a Roman candle at the end of his act and he would drop his, his pantaloons and he would insert the uh, Roman candle in, into the, the place where the, the sun don't shine <laughs> and he would light it. And that was okay. the finale of his show. And the, the peewee thing, it just happened and it was like, mm, no. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of a sad story, but a happy one for me as <laughs> a Roman candle. So, you know, they, uh, Jay said, I know this guy uh, and we had met each other in New York. We were trying to pitch uh, a show based on uh, the puppet stuff that I was doing to HBO mm -hmm. and a couple other places. And then, you know, didn't talk for a few years. And then he said, I know this guy in New York. I sent them a tape of me playing a food technologist wearing a lab coat and a chef's toque where I use slides from actual food processing um, brochures and, and uh, government documents to talk about the disgusting contemporary food technology. And they saw this and they, they went apeshit. Oh, it's this, you know, this guy this is the guy blah 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 and then brought me out and, and i did a screen test 
Um, one thing I, I, I understand from reading an article about your um, getting involved in the show is that something about knocking over a jug of water had something to do with getting the role? Yeah, I mean, I was very nervous. I hadn't slept that night. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't have a character. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I, I was wearing a lab coat and they had some beakers with water. And I was supposed to, I think I was supposed to ad lib around some topic. I don't, I don't remember exactly. But at one point I knocked over a beaker of water and I'm, I'm an ad lib guy, not from the comedy thing, but just from, you know, we ad lib when we perform in bread mm-hmm. and puppet theater and in my own work, you know, something comes up, you roll with it. And so I rolled with it and, uh, you know, civilians just love that. They, they think it's like magical. How, how did you do that? You know, this terrible thing happened. You knock something over and, you know, I splashed it around. I put it on like it was cologne, you know, whatever. <laughs> and that sealed the deal according to those guys. So, um, that's how I got the part. Gotcha. I mean, after you got the part and, you know, you're working with Jay Dubin, I mean, what was the process of creating the character? Because, I mean, Beekman is a real look with the roadkill hair and the green lab coat um, and even his, you know, gigantic personality. How did you two develop that? Uh, what was interesting was the executive producer, Mark Waxman, mm-hmm. he said to me one day, because what happened was I tried to get hired as a writer and I had no juice in Hollywood. They were not going to hire me as a writer. You know, I got paid double scale. I mean, it was just, you know, the, if you don't have any juice, if you don't have any power, the whole machinery is really designed to make sure it stays that way. Mm. <laughs> you know, understandably. I mean, the, you know, if you look at it from the producer's standpoint, you don't want to have people who have more power than you do. So they do whatever they can to contain you. And they were not going to give me a, uh, a job as a writer. So I figured, hey, what the hell? I got I got nothing else to do. I'll just volunteer. And I volunteered to help create the show. And I, I came out to uh, Los Angeles. And I, you know, I went to work every day. I wasn't getting paid. I didn't get credit. But I sat in meetings, you know, came up with ideas. And I get kind of excited sometimes and i wave my hands around and i get more of a new york accent and waxman said to me oh that's the guy that's the, you know when you get excited and you're waving your hands around you get more new york he says that's the guy and that was yeah. a very helpful note and he told me something else actually that was extremely helpful he said you're the the star of the show and he said your mood and your how you are will affect the mood of the entire stage. I'm like, what? Really? And he said, yes. And he was right. And it's an interesting power, kind of an ugly power that's given to you when you're in that okay. position. And I, every day as I drove to work, I would just cajole myself into being in a, you know, the greatest, jolliest, happiest mood possible. <laughs> Until by the time I got to work, I was like ecstatically happy. And we just laughed <laughs> and had fun, ad lib, goofed yeah. around all day long. It was an open set. Anybody could walk in off the lot and come in, hang out. Um, it was not a very Hollywood environment. You know, the the, the prop guy, um, this is a, a terrific guy, Ron Jankula. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he would come up with ideas and um, he would suggest something. And, you know, you don't do that in Hollywood. It's a very hierarchical, you know, a prop guy. You just make props. So he would make a suggestion. And if Jay liked it, he'd use it. And if he didn't, he would say, no, it's a bad idea. 
what happened was he worked on another show subsequently and he came up with an idea and he threw it out there and a producer said to him, one more idea and you're fired. So we just came from a very different atmosphere and, uh, and it was great. It was wonderful. We had a lot of laughs. It was just, it was great. It was a great experience. Hard work. It's very hard work, yeah. but uh, exciting and fun and yeah, great time. I'd I'd hate to ask you to do any acting for this podcast because it's a podcast. But I mean, how does that cajoling of yourself kind of sound like? How did that actually go when you were in the car on your way to work? A lot of it just comes from gratitude. I mean, I don't Mm want to be a cornball or, you know, get self-righteous or whatever. But, you know, I have a lot to be thankful for. You know, I got a pulse. I got a a roof over my head. I mean, I... It's unbelievable how it's very easy to be super uh, grateful. And if you get into that state, you're like halfway there. And, you know, just think about it and how much fun this is. What a great gig. Beautiful day. It's sunny every day here. Uh, (laughs) You know, I can talk myself into being pretty uh, jolly if I take the time and pay attention and actually do it. Unfortunately, I don't do it enough. Well, I mean, that's something that, you know, you know, Beekman's personality and his, you know, love of learning that you sort of brought to the show, I think is essential for kids to want to learn. Like they have to be enthusiastic. They have to be excited in order to make, you know, science seem like something that they'd want to get into. So, I mean, I think you did an amazing job as a character on the show. Well, thank um, you. Thanks. You're welcome. Um, but one thing I want to get into is that, you know, you were, you mentioned Lester before, who was played by Mark Ritz, who, you know, sadly passed away in 2009. But he was also a huge personality on the show and you know, it was a foil to your character. Uh, what was it like working with him? Oh, he was fantastic. He's fantastic. I mean, I, I, I adored Mark. I just love the hell out of him. He's such a great guy. Um and he was hired to do a puppet on the show. Right. And so it was going to be like Beekman would talk and then you'd cut to an insert of the puppet making some, you know, wisecrack. And Jay was like, what do we need a puppet for? And they'd already hired Mark to do a puppet on the show. He says, what do we want a puppet? They can't hold anything. They can't really interact. He says, no, let's put a guy in a rat suit. It's way funnier. And so Mark showed up and we said, no, we're not doing a puppet. You're going to be in a rat suit. And he was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, the suit was incredible. I mean, I I tried it on before, um, before he showed up when they were doing, they were Mm -hmm. building the costume. I went out to the customer's place and, um, and I, I, you know, I put it on. She says, well, I got to put the sleeves on. And Jay and I said, no, forget the sleeves. I had a white T-shirt. It looks great. He looks like Rough Trade or something. You know, he looks like a teamster. Yeah. And and I said, oh, let's put tattoos on a guy. And I think it was my idea. Let's change the tattoos every episode. Just change mm-hmm. them. So it was little stuff like that. Um, yeah. And then Mark, when he showed up, you know, he had to adapt to this thing. And, you know, Mark is a puppeteer like I am. And Mm -hmm. I think for puppeteers, it's not necessarily that big a deal to put down a puppet and just be the puppet yourself. You know, for us, we can look at acting that way. And in the first few episodes, he gave Lester kind of a squeaky character voice. And it just wasn't it wasn't working. 
And so he changed it to the voice that he used in the show. But he was, yeah. you know, he never complained about it. And he wore that stinking suit for hours and hours. Never complained. <laughs> it was really hot. He had a fan that he used to stick under there and have the fan blowing <laughs> on him. Right. Uh, and those feet. Oh, my goodness. Those feet, yeah. you know. I was gonna. I was gonna say it looked like the the suit probably weighed quite a bit. It looked pretty heavy and pretty bulky. Yeah, yeah. And he had some signature um, signature stuff that he would do. Uh, he would go ooh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just put that in one of the scripts. I'm making these little movies, and I um, I'm gonna have a character do that. And I wrote down, you know, like Mark Ritz, and he he was just really fun to work with great at ad-libbing we just you know we got along great and we were very very close and i was fortunate enough to be part of his care team towards the end of his life when he he died of oh, cancer right so i was very blessed to be able to help his wife teresa and teresa and uh and go up there and be with him through that which was uh an, an amazing experience. So yeah, I, I miss him all the time. What an awesome guy. He really was an amazing human being and a terrific, he was so good on the show. It was like this whip that was cracking on your, on your hiney all the time <laughs> that you had to be good enough to be up to his level. You know, right. you couldn't, you had to really, really be disciplined and be good and, you know, good at your job to, to even come close to how great this guy was. So was it one of those kind of kind of things on set where you two were sort of pushing each other to be as like at the same level of energy the whole time, or how did that work? I I think it, maybe that was sort of an unspoken, unconscious thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, the show was shot with two cameras, both with ultra wide angle lenses, and they were practic- They were in, in fact touching the two cameras, and oh, they okay. were never more than four feet from our faces. And they never, ever, ever moved. So the cameramen would come in, they'd set up the shot, and you know they'd sit out, hang out, read magazines. They had nothing to do, hmm. uh, unless we moved to you know another part of the set to shoot. So what made the show kinetic wasn't the cameras moving; it was the it was the actors moving from camera to camera, and you pick up the cut, you know, as you move from one camera to the other, and you'd pick it up. And, and that's what made it kinetic. And, you know, that is very, very unusual. And this is Jay. You know, Jay, he's an expert at three things. At science, he's really into it. And he's very knowledgeable about it. He sees every frame as a picture or a painting the way an artist does. So he's really good at interpreting visual information, creating visuals. And third, he's fantastic at comedy. He's a hilarious guy, really funny, and great at inventing jokes and coming up with gags, especially sight gags. Right. He's he's a huge part of the success of the show. Nothing disappears. Oh, yeah? How about my agent after he got me this gig? Um, and one thing, too, is we can't forget about your co-host that you had on the show because you were with a presenter uh, throughout all the seasons. There was Eliza Schneider, who played Liza, uh, Alana Ubach, who played Josie, and Santa Moses Mikan, who played Phoebe. Yep. Um, any favorite memories working with them on the show? I remember with Alana, uh, <laughs> at one point, I think it was the snot episode, <laughs> that she got some um, snot in her face as I was waving right. my hands around. And she did like this slow burn, and she was uh, she was quite uh, facile at doing such things. 
Um, she had a very rubbery face, and each one of the three of them brought something different to the show, a different set of talents and a different sensibility. And, uh, and I, I think that was great. And we, you know, we had a lot of laughs. We got along really well on the stage. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. They've all had interesting careers after Beekman. Uh, Eliza is an expert in, um, dialects and accents and she gives workshops and teaches and she's amazing. It's amazing. The, the knowledge that she has, uh, and, um, and then, uh, and Senta has a career going and, you know, um, working as an actress. We had a reunion at her house and that was really cool. It was really nice to see her meet her husband, hang out with the, we, we had like a, you know, big reunion, mm-hmm. like a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago? I think so. Oh, wow. That's really recent. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what spurred that? Uh, I don't know. She came up with this idea <laughs> and... Maybe it was like an anniversary or something. I, I right. don't recall. And Alana, I haven't been in touch with, but I do once in a while see things about her online, and I see mm-hmm. that she's working and she has a family, and yeah. So uh, we were very lucky to have three very talented um, humans on the show. You know, what was it like stepping onto the set? What did it look like? How big was it actually? It it was quite big, mm-hmm. um, and it had. In its center was like the lab table where all the lab stuff and, you know, a lot of stuff happened sort of in the center at this table. And then uh, if you're looking from the camera's point of view, off to the right was the kitchen area where we did um, Art Burns, the, the disgusting cook. Now, we got to use the stove, so be careful you don't burn some body part you're going to need later. <laughs> And then to the left, in the back, there was a couch and a little living area. And then there was there were big signs and props and all you know all this stuff hanging around. And it was actually a very beautiful environment to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a really nice ambiance uh, and feeling to it. And um, yeah, I liked it. It was it was very pretty to look at. And, you know, Wayne White and uh, Bob Green put that together. Wayne White is the guy who did the um, the computer animations uh, on an Omega computer, which was way outdated, actually, <laughs> when we did the show. Right. And, uh, he and I got along great. He's a big uh, Ed Big Daddy Roth fan and R. Crumb and Bluegrass guy and, and okay. you know, me too. So we, we definitely... And, you know, he used some Ed Roth stuff in the animations. And then Bob Breen, who actually dressed the set and put all of that together based on drawings that um, that Wayne had made. We, mm-hmm. I also became very good friends with him. And uh, he's a remarkable guy, incredible knowledge about um, art and antiques and, um, yeah, and, and, and great friend. Uh, Wayne was, of course, worked on uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse. Okay, right. And he did the puppets for Pee Wee's Playhouse, and he's a painter, and he's become very famous um, since the show, which is great. And he mm. lives just down the hill, like um, a few miles from my house here. Yeah, I mean, something that's, it's totally a, a tangent, and we don't have to have this in the actual episode, but I, I spoke with another um, creator named Brian Leary, and 
she had worked with a CBS executive. I can't remember her name right now. I think it's Josie something. But she had also mentioned uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse. And a number of other people I've spoken to have mentioned Pee-wee's Playhouse. And unfortunately, it's sort of a show that that sort of came before my time. But, I mean, how formative was that as, you know, a piece of television to, I guess, 1990s, you know, television? I think it was quite formative. Uh, people say that our show was very influenced by it. I, I don't agree with that. I don't think it was. Mm. Maybe it was from Jay's standpoint. I mean, when you look at that show, it, it, the set always looked like a set. Everything looked like it was made out of foam core, and you know, which was great. It gave it that sort of cartoony look. So I guess, in a certain respect, our show had that in in common. Um, and just the, you know, the nutty sensibility. When I think about influences, you know, I think about Soupy Sales, uh, not so much Mr. Wizard, but Soupy Sales, you know, who was this great sort of clown figure who just had this wonderful um, presence on the camera. And, you know, the the puppets, White Fang and Bluetooth, the, these arms that would come in from the side uh, of, you know, some big hairy beast but all you ever saw was the arm you never saw the rest of the puppet well how i think how are you what's going on well you see this dinner set up here this is a new invention i've come up with see it's really something and the best way is to just show you right this these are atmosphere music pills that's right atmosphere music pills and uh, that became inspiration for Ray on our show, who, you know, mm, his arm right. would come in and do stuff. Um, and just the way Soupy treated the frame as a frame, like the like a proscenium, you know, using the edge. I mean, nobody does that in television, using it as an edge. It's not supposed to be an edge. You're in a world. The world doesn't have edges. But to use that edge, it's a, it's a like a th- throwback from the vaudeville days, you know, the, the influence of vaudeville on television. Mm. And the way the crew would laugh on Soupy's show and the way they had the jokes for the adults and the adult, uh, jokes for the kids. And I mean, it became a very, very popular adult comedy show, but it was meant to be a kid's show. And, you know, the Rat Pack was on the show and, you know, Sinatra and those other guys. And, I mean, it was huge. Wall Street shut down every day at noon. You know, everybody was watching Soupy. And I performed with him, actually, on a TV show um, Comedy Tonight in New York, Bill Boggs. And he saw, I did a found object thing, and he saw me in the green room, apparently. And as I passed him in the hallway, he said, nice job, kid. <laughs> and I was like, I can die now. I mean, I just love the soup, man. He was just, he's just that. And, and, you know, uh, Lord Buckley, big influence, hipster comedian from the um, 30s, 40s, and particularly the 50s and 60s, a giant, giant figure in American comedy history and an idol and a giant influence on me in terms of dynamics of voices, creating characters, telling stories. Um, so he's he's another guy who I, I really look up to and feel mm-hmm. inspired by. One other aspect of the show that we haven't mentioned yet is that, you know, as much as Beekman, Lester, and, and the co-hosts are part of the show, um, essentially the the material of the show comes from questions from kids and these were actual questions that were sent in and uh you know according to that article from new york times which i had mentioned before you get something like a thousand a week or something like that 
Um, were there any sort of memorable letters that you received as Beekman? I I think some kid once wrote in about being gay. Okay. And I ended up calling the kid and, you know, telling him things will get better. Um, so that sticks out in my mind. And he contacted me later as an adult and said he really appreciated that. Uh, you know, and it's a gay guy, as a queer myself, I could definitely relate. But I, the letters that we kept in the bin that spun around, they were actual letters. And it was fun sometimes just to reach in there and read them. And sometimes I would, you know, I'd find somebody's phone number and call these kids. And um, <laughs> I remember I called one kid who was like on Mott Street or something um, or Prince Street in, uh, in Chinatown in New York. And I said, hey, it's Beekman. And the kid says, listen, I, I'm in the middle of something. Can you call me back? <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. So, you know, in the beginning, we had to use made-up letters. But once we got going, we did mm -hmm. use uh, actual letters from kids who wrote in. Yeah. Um, and, and one thing, too, is that you've also mentioned in the past that your audience, you know, wasn't just kids, but also adults, you know, who might be a little science shy, like people might be a little, you know, worried about their knowledge of science, but want to learn more. I mean, what did you think of the at the time, uh, sort of about, you know, your role as a science communicator, not just for kids, but also for older audiences? Uh, I remember hearing that over 50% of the audience was adults. Hmm. And my neighbor in New York, uh, an artist um, who lived downstairs or upstairs from me, he said, yeah, I watch a show because I know I'll get the science. And that was a, a, quite an insight. It was like, oh, they're watching because they know it's pitched towards kids. And that means it'll be accessible to them and it'll be easy for them to understand. That was a huge revelation. Um, you know, we really didn't think about what sort of effect we would have. Uh, I was really interested in trying to make the show as funny as possible and, and trying to make the information as clear as possible. And, you know, that was really interesting to take those two things. And I, you know, I've been doing that all my life, taking raw information and finding ways of, uh, translating it into comedy and entertainment. So that that aspect of it was not new to me. I've been doing it all along and continue to do it. And I'm working on a little uh, movie now. I'm doing these Santa movies. Um, uh, Santa Controls the World. And uh, we're doing one now about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And okay. I want to have a few facts in the thing. And it's like, how do you find a way to put the facts in it that it does? it's not didactic? And it's not a pain in the ass. And you know, it's like, I, I don't want to listen to this. And the device we invented for that was we have this duck, which I call the didactic duck. And he just comes in and states facts. And then you have to find the pithiest fact, you know, the most, it's sort of like fast facts on Beekman's world, finding these right, facts yeah. that are maybe not commonly known, but are just really interesting. So I've spent many, many years trying to find, way to find ways to take 
information and make it entertaining. And at the same time, you know, it can mm -hmm. be very disturbing and upsetting and everything else. But maybe <laughs> by laughing at it, we're liberated in some way to actually do something about it. Quack. In fact, there never has been a war on Christmas, except when early Christian settlers, the Puritans, slide please, quack, outlawed Christmas in 1659, quack. They objected to its pagan origins and lack of biblical justification, plus all the booze and quack. Hey, who the Sam Hill asked you? Get the duck out of here! Quack, quack. Sort of pivoting into something different, but also still related. And we had mentioned Chalk Church before, who is the you know creator of You Can with Beekman and Jax. Uh, which was, yeah, the syndicated comic strip, which ran up until 2016. And, and he also seemed to be a person who had a passion for, you know, you know, taking science-y sort of questions from kids and providing an accessible and entertaining answer to them and, and sort of explaining the world of facts around him. Um, I think you had mentioned in, over an email with me that you had actually uh, met with them and worked with them a little bit. Um, unfortunately, he, he died and also in 2016. And I was just wondering if you could just tell us and our listeners a little bit about Jock. Well, Jock, um, he had a very interesting career. Mm -hmm. um, he worked with Christo and, um, and his wife, whose name uh, escapes me, uh, on a number of projects. He was a, an early pioneer in alternative radio. Um, he, he was a very passionate guy and there was a little bit of kind of an anti-authoritarian tinge to, or anti-authority tinge to his comic, like an empowerment of children that asking questions was an empowerment. And, um, he had a very strong personality, um, which rubbed, you know, could rub people the wrong way. And, as a result, he was a little bit edged to the side in the, the Hollywood end of the Beekman thing. Right. But, uh, yeah, he was brilliant at the way he would take kids' questions and explain them and find out explanations and put them together. And we became very close. And he was a big supporter of the work I, I did. He loved the movie we made. We'd made a, a film of Dante's Inferno using paper puppets uh, based on Sandow Burke's um, paintings, drawings, the uh, L.A.-based painter. And he loved that film, was a big uh, proponent of it. And I spent time with him and um, and his husband in, um, when they lived out in uh, Marin, was it Marin or San Rafael, San Rafael, and also in Tennessee. Right. So we spent, uh, we spent time together and yeah, he was great. He was amazing. I guess, as you sort of mentioned before, I guess he wasn't too, too heavily involved in the TV show. Um, but what were his sort of thoughts on it and your portrayal as, you know, kind of his character? I think he was very happy with it. Uh, you know, he was unhappy about a lot of things and complained about a lot of stuff. Mm. But by and large, uh, he was quite happy. And I think he liked the portrayal. Um, you know, he had seen me at least once doing a live Beekman stage show. Uh, he's a big fan of the Exploratorium in San Francisco, and he lived up there in San Francisco. And I premiered the first live Beekman stage show up there. And I actually worked with the people at the Exploratorium to develop a number of the pieces that were in the act. And I think that was pretty exciting to him because he he volunteered there and he worked on projects with them. And um, 
and he was great. You know, he supported me doing these tours of these Beekman shows. I made, I don't know, three or four different shows. Beekman on the Brain was one of them about, uh, you know, the science behind the brain. And, uh, and I toured almost every state in the country. I can't really think of a state I didn't perform in. And <laughs> toured relentlessly for many years and really enjoyed it. It was really fun. It's great riling up, you know, 1,500 kids in the <laughs> theater. I mean, just getting them crazy. And the teachers didn't always appreciate it. You know, they're telling the kids to shut up and don't move and don't jump up and down. And then I get out there and 30 seconds later, I got them screaming at the top of the lungs and yelling at me. And then when I needed them to shut up, I'd say, okay, pipe down, pipe down. You know, I mean, I'm on the stage. You're going to listen to me. I don't need teachers to be hitting them with cattle prods, you know, we, <laughs> but a lot of teachers, you know, the show was successful because a lot of teachers remembered the show. They loved the show mm -hmm. and that made it possible, you know, for me to get the gigs because of the support from the educational community. Before we get into our next topic, I thought I'd share this clip with our listeners here uh, where Church talks a bit about, you know, a circle of caring and an experience that he had had with his teacher from his childhood. Thank you very much. Um, you know, what I do is write for children. I'm probably America's most widely read children's author, in fact. And I always tell people that I don't want to show up looking like a scientist. You can have me as a farmer or in leathers, and no one has ever chose farmer. <laughs> I'm here today to talk to you about circles and epiphanies. And you know, an epiphany is usually something you find that you drop someplace. You just got to go around the block to see it as an epiphany. That's a painting of a circle. A friend of mine did that. Richard Bolingbroke. It's um, the kind of complicated circle that I'm going to tell you about. My circle began back in the 60s in high school in Stowe, Ohio, where I was the class queer. I was the guy beaten up bloody every week in the boys' room until one teacher saved my life. She saved my life by letting me go to the bathroom in the boys in the teacher's lounge. She did it in secret. She did it for three years, and I had to get out of town. I had a thumb, I had $85, and I ended up in San Francisco, California. Met a lover, and back in the 80s found it necessary to begin work on AIDS organizations. About three or four years ago, I got a phone call in the middle of the night from that teacher, Mrs. Poston, who said, I need to see you. I am disappointed that we never got to know each other as adults. Could you please come to Ohio and please bring that man that I know you have found by now? <laughs> and I should mention that I have pancreatic cancer, and I'd like you to please be quick about this. Well, the next day we were in Cleveland. We took a look at her, we laughed, we cried, and we knew that she needed to be in a hospice. We found her one, we got her there, and we took care of her and watched over her family because it was necessary, it's something we knew how to do. And just as a woman who wanted to know me as an adult got to know me, she turned into a box of ashes and was placed in my hand. And what had happened was the circle had closed. It had become a circle. And that epiphany I talked about presented itself. The epiphany is that death is a part of life. She saved my life, 
I and my partner saved hers. And you know, that part of life needs everything that the rest of life does. It needs truth and beauty, and I'm so happy it's been mentioned so much here today. It also needs, um, it needs uh, dignity, love, and pleasure, and it's our job to hand those things out. Thank you. What did you think of that clip? Well, I was very moved by that. And I had heard the story before, but somehow Mm -hmm. hearing it this time, it just kind of sunk in more. And I think one of the things that's sort of remarkable about being a teacher uh, is you can have an enormous impact on people's lives. I mean, you really can. I had a, a, a theater teacher in high school who was a little curmudgeonly nasty Englishman with a rapier sharp wit and and he was really terrible to a lot of students and uh but he liked me because you know he could tell I'm you know I'm a, just a natch and you know I, I I when it comes to that thing you know I have the goods and right. I, I mean I'm, I, I know it sounds like I'm bragging but you know there are people uh-huh. in this world who are just born natural performers and I would be one of those it doesn't mean I don't stink half the time or I don't have bad ideas or I'm not an idiot it just you know I have an inclination in that direction and as much of a curmudgeon and not a nice guy he recognized that and he cast me in a couple of uh, Edward Albee plays when I was in high school one of them was a zoo story, which was like monumentally difficult and all became to the show because he was a graduate of the school I went to and I hadn't really learned my lines. And he said he didn't appreciate <laughs> the variations in the text. And yeah, I was 16 years old. I was so nervous. I was like peeing in a cup in the, in the dressing room because there's no bathroom. <laughs> but anyway, he was a teacher that had, and I have a, a couple of other, there were a couple of other teachers that had that impact. And my husband actually, Daryl Young, He's, he won an award of being the top math professor in the United States last year. And he's incredibly dedicated to the profession of teaching and is a true expert at it and studies it. And it was really interesting and interested in the teaching of teaching. So teachers have a huge, can have a huge and very positive impact on our lives. And, you know, I'm told by people a lot that I had a big impact on their lives like hundreds of people have told me that, particularly in Latin America, where Beekman is, is way more popular than the States. And that's, we never thought of that when we were doing the show. Like, oh, we're going to change people's lives. People are going to become doctors, astrophysicists, uh, professors, uh, you know, high school science teachers because of our show. I mean, it never occurred to us that we would have mm-hmm. that kind of impact. And that's been an incredible gift and, um, you know, just an amazing thing for which I, you know, I'm super grateful. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of your, your sort of Latin American audience, you've talked about people actually fainting when they meet you. <laughs> and yes, the main people who, you know, have said that they became scientists and you know, astrophysicists because of you and, and your work as Beekman. I mean, to you, is that, um, does that put any pressure on you at all in, in terms of like, uh, or what's that like for you to hear that? Uh, the first time I became aware of this was in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And I had been invited to go to Brazil. And the house was like two or 3,000 people. And I do remember 
a woman passing out and being body surfed, you know, out of the crowd, right. having to be led out of the place by like 20 security people. And I, you know, like I said, I, I had no idea. I mean, the show was popular in the States. I was on the cover of TV Guide and Spielberg said it was his favorite kid show and yuggada yuggada. But not like not like what happens in Mexico and, and in Brazil. And and I understand also in Argentina and Peru and, and Chile and, and uh, Bolivia, uh, many countries in Latin America really, really passionate about the show in a way that it, it touched something in the Latin sensibility that did not really happen in quite the same way as the States. And people were, are super passionate, you know, they weep. And uh, I, I felt in danger a couple of times in these crowds. Oh, okay. right. Yeah, it's really, really intense. And I'm constantly trying to find out why I ask people why and people say, oh, because the show was fun and you taught science so well. No, that's it, it. This is an emotional thing. This, And I think it's because children would sit in front of the television and there was this guy that spoke to them in a way like, not like they're kids, but like they're just, you know, adults or normal people or whatever, not talking down to them and making direct eye contact with them. And to Kids is not a big difference between the TV set in the room and a human mm -hmm. in the room. You know what I mean? They're all put sort of on the same level. It's not like, oh, he's some big star or whatever. He's like, they're, this guy's their friend. And he's a friendly guy. He's looking me in the eyes. It's making me laugh and it's goofy and blah, blah, blah. So I think it's that emotional connection that really, can, you know, is has was made with those children down there and which they they really appreciate and going down there and you know i mean i got hired to do this show at unam for the 75th anniversary of their physics department it's the largest university in latin america and i was playing in mexico city and they said oh we want to book you into a 600 seat theater and then then they said oh we're going to put you in an 850 seat and then they okay. said actually we're going to do it outside and then they okay. said uh you know let's do three shows. So I ended up playing for like 20,000 people. So it's wow. been quite a trip. All right, I'm Beekman. Yep. And you've just broken into Beekman Live. Yeah. One thing was, is a few years ago, uh, you appeared on a YouTube channel called Captain Disillusion, uh, oh, yeah. where you reprise your role as Beekman uh, to debunk the, uh, the, the myth of perpetual motion machines. Uh, where did that collaboration come from? Um... He got in touch with me, um, and I watched some of his videos. I thought they were really mm -hmm. cool. And, um, you know, he said, come out and do this with me. And I was actually just thinking about it yesterday because I remember I, I asked him. I went out a day early uh, because I always like to do that in case there's a travel delay. I, want, I don't want to miss a gig. And I asked him if he would mind taking me out to Miami beach to the, um, Wolfsonian museum, which is a spectacular museum of, uh, all this collection of this guy, uh, a lot of art and objects and ephemera. And, um, I remember being in the car and the, the rock band Luna was playing, um, a song and I'll never forget that because it has an amazing Tom Verlaine, you know, from television, the fan television, an amazing guitar solo. And 
anyway, it was, uh, I really remember that working with him and doing the whole thing very fondly. It was a lot of fun. He was a great guy. Mm. And yeah, we had a, we had a wonderful time. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the question I kind of wanted to ask is that, you know, traditional broadcasters still exist, uh, but they are on the decline. But do you think Beekman as a show or Beekman's world would work on a, uh, online network like YouTube? Uh, the problem is that the production values on Beekman were pretty high. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the episodes cost like 200 grand each. Okay. And nobody spends that kind of money on kids television now. I mean, maybe 50, 60 grand an episode. And now it's like a toy company as a toy and they put up the money in the studio. You know, I mean, it's just a whole different world and it's, you know, it's disgusting. Um, so no, I, I don't know how you get those kind of production values, how you, how to, I mean, if somebody said, okay, let's do a Beekman show, I would say, then let's think about it in a, as a totally different approach, like make it, you know, it could be an animated show. It could be with puppets. It could be a combination of those two things. Um, I would, you'd have to think about doing it in such a radically different way that people wouldn't be comparing it. You know, I mean, they're going to compare it anyway. And, it, and I think it'd be very hard to have it at that level of quality. And, you know, oddly, I mean, Sony doesn't care about the show. They don't care about selling syndication. They don't care about the legacy. They, they, they have never done, I mean, back in the day they did, but it, it, it's a tragedy because this thing could have been a, mm-hmm. a franchise that would just keep on going and going and going and, you know, doing a really positive pro-social thing. I mean, everybody who worked on the show, they all said, this is the greatest thing, experience I've had in mm-hmm. my professional career. And we've done something good. You know, we've done something positive. But the studio, they, they don't care. They couldn't care less. Right. Well, I was, uh, was going to ask that um, kind of in the final stretch of things here. But, you know, the show went on for four seasons, but it did end. Uh, why did it end? You only need 91 shows to go into second-run syndication okay. for, for kids because the kids grow up and the audience keeps turning over. That was the theory behind it. This is when second-run syndication was a big money maker for uh, studios. Today, not so much. But, you know, they were in the, the Seinfeld business, which is billions of you know, billions and billions of dollars in syndication. And Beekman, uh, you know, amounted to maybe a few million bucks in profits for them. Uh, so I think that's why there's not a great deal of interest in, in pushing it. But it, it's, I think it's a shame because it could have been something that would have been a really good, uh, you know, just from the public relations standpoint for them to embrace it. And if they had played the, the merchandising and stuff like that right, then, you know, they'd still be making and selling toys. I, I guess one thing that I, I had noticed, and this is, again, like kind of a, a, a deep in the weeds kind of question, is that, you know, I've talked to a lot of creators about intellectual property rights when it comes to the shows that they created and the characters that create they created as well. So, I mean, when you go out into the world as Beekman on sort of your live tours or going to a show... Um, I mean, do you own the intellectual property behind the character itself? Or is it just something that, as you said, Sony doesn't really care and you just kind of do it like however? But how does that work? Well, Sony says they own the episodes. Okay. That's it. 
Um, the live performance rights, I've been performing for over 25 years, live Beekman shows, and there have been no objections from anybody. So according to U.S. law, I own the rights by, you know, virtue of the fact that nobody's contested. And the estate uh, owns the rights, you know, of the image. And, and I'm close to the, the guy who uh, inherited the estate. And, you know, we talk and we're in touch with each other. And, um, and in the rare occasions that I get a paying job, that's appropriate. Like, a, I did a thing for a video game company. Um, mm -hmm. Always make sure that they pay him a royalty. Okay, gotcha. Right now, as we're recording this, we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and hopefully it's going to get better soon, fingers crossed. Um, but, you know, once the pandemic sort of calms down a little bit, are you planning to get out there as Beekman again? I think I will, yeah. I mean, I... I'm supposed to go to Guadalajara in late June or early July. Mm -hmm. um, and if I've had my two doses and I feel it's safe enough, I'll go and do that. Um, I've been touring for 50, 50 years and I'm a little bit over it at this point. Gotcha. Um, but I really do like going down there because the love is so great. The houses are so big. You know, I commonly play for six, seven, eight thousand people. And I get volunteers on stage. I get them to ad lib and we improvise. And it, it's just a lot of fun. So I'd like to keep doing that. The, the live puppet shows. I'm not I'm I'm not so enthusiastic about touring those anymore. I, I, I'm making these small puppet films. Um, on my YouTube channel, Fruit of Zaloom. And uh, they're, you know, Santa Claus is the sort of uh, anti-hero, whatever, using figures, different um, Christmas figures and tchotchkes and stuff to tell these little stories. Um, the films are like three to five minutes long. So that's what really interests me. I turned the garage into a TV studio and gotcha. we're grinding those things out. It's a lot of fun. You gotta, you have to do one on a vaccine hesitancy and be like, you guys have to get the jab, get the vaccine, please. Yeah. 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 That'd be a good one to, to go after. Um, so as a kind of final question here, and it's kind of a, a question I ask a lot of creators and a lot of actors in their shows is, you know, what do you think is the, uh, lasting legacy of Beekman's world? Well, I hope it's that people had a, a laugh. You know, they had a good laugh. They enjoyed themselves, you mm -hmm. know, put them in a good mood. I'd settle for that. Um, but I think the the lasting legacy, I mean, I, like I said, people will say to me, you know, I'm a scientist or a teacher or whatever because of you. And they'll say, you must be tired of hearing that. And I'm, I'm like, how could you possibly get tired of hearing that? <laughs> Can you say it again louder? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's wonderful. It's great. You know, what else could you want as an artist than, you know, having an effect on people's lives? So that's great. Makes me very happy. Well, that's great. Well, again, um, you know, Paul Zaloom, thank you so much for your time and uh, really appreciate you being here and just, you know, keep it up and stay safe out there. Thanks, man. You too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. 
This is episode 1 of 2 in this series, and coming up next is a chat with St. Moses Michael, who played Phoebe in later seasons. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend over the social media airwaves, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And stay tuned for our next episode.